0: So it looks like we are technically ready. Let me, oh, oh, you haven't set up the recorder. Okay, go ahead and set up the recorder. Okay, so hi, RJ. Hey, Tony. Thank you for going through all this effort. This is unusual. We are in sort of Corona separation. So I'm at my house and you are at your house. Mm-hmm. Normally when we do Beyond the Lecture podcasts, we'll go through everything together and we'll work through the scripts. But today's gonna to be a little bit different. So I've been working on a story largely on my own. You don't know any of the details of it. I don't know anything. Yeah, and isn't, isn't that a refreshing feeling? <laughs>
1: It is, actually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take you through the story, and then we'll see where we end up.
1: Uh, so, what's it about?
0: Okay, so it's about a lot of things. It starts out very small, unassumingly even, but eventually it ends up being about an event that became so big, it was written about in various media outlets like the New York Times, The Economist, The Washington Post... Wow. But on a more basic level, I suppose it's about grief. Mm-hmm. More specifically, why and how do we as a species grieve when things we love die? Uh-huh. Doing the research for the story, I was reminded about the first time in my life when I had to deal with grief. So when I was about six years old, I had a pet parakeet. Okay. <laughs> Tweety was his name. Tweety. Yeah, it was it was the height of Sylvester and Tweety uh, of that <laughs> era, you know, um, peak Tweety, as it were. Yeah. And also, I wasn't very creative, so there how, you go. Wait,
1: how old were you? How old were you?
0: I think I was about like six or so. Not very old,
1: but old enough to remember. I mean, all yeah, the specifics of the bird.
0: Totally, and it's it's like one of my f- one of my earliest childhood memories. Wow. Anyway, because the parakeets typically don't live that long, <laughs> that inevitable day came when. Tweety was no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I was devastated. So I remember. Mim- de-
1: did they die of natural causes?
0: Yeah, there was no Tweety homicide here. Uh, it, was all, it was all above board. <laughs> and I mimic what my parents did when someone died, you know, when we had a funeral. Well, that is to say, I forced my family to have a funeral. Uh huh. So I got my father to wear a suit and my mom to wear a Sunday dress. We put little Tweety in a little shoebox and buried him next to the Strelitzias in the garden, the flowers we had there. And so there we were. Things were going well, I thought. My dad was digging, and everyone seemed solemn enough. But at one point, I felt that something was missing, you know? I thought this funeral mm. should be like other funerals I'd been to, there should be they should be singing. <laughs> it was too quiet. It was too quiet. I thought there should be... I, I thought singing is what happens when people are solemn, so I want that. And so... I told my parents we should sing the most spiritual song that I could think of at the time, which was a song from my Sunday school. The lyrics go as follows. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom over the enemy, (laughs) but I'm in the Lord's army.
1: (laughs) The animation is
0: killing.
2: I
3: may never march
2: in
1: the
4: infantry, ride in the cavalry. Shoot the artillery i may never zoom the
0: enemy but i'm in the Lord's army I'm okay in that's, the the enough, army. that's enough that's
1: enough okay i got i got the idea i think all the all the singers are also six it sounds like
0: this is a good age for that kind of thing and as you can hear there are all sorts of things mixed in there there's religion there's the military and then there's, there's whistles yeah there's whistles and then there's <laughs> and then there's Tweety the parakeet. <laughs> and keep in mind that we're standing there with our hands on our hearts <laughs> in front of the Strelitzias, and it was all, you know, suitably solemn.
1: Okay, this is all really, really interesting, Tony, and, um, uh, but how is this connected to our fellows at the Academy?
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a necessary connection, I concede. I was speaking to our Spring 2020 fellow, Dominic Boyer, and his wife, Semeny Howe, about the concept of grief, and they were looking at grief from a different perspective, as cultural anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I need you to bear with me. The story takes some twists and turns, but be a little patient, we're going to get back to the topic of grief soon enough. But first, let me tell you about Dominic and Semini. First thing you should know about them is they're married and they work together.
4: <laughs> well, actually, we met in the halls of the anthropology building at Cornell University. It's like a real anthropological romance, right? if you think about it.
0: I guess, yeah. <laughs>
4: He doesn't sound convinced, but that's where we met. It was in a professional setting.
0: And speaking to them, I realized that grief comes into the average Westerner's life pretty sporadically nowadays. You know, perhaps a loved one might die here or there, or a big catastrophe like with the coronavirus crisis. That might cause people to grieve. But on the whole, people's lives in Europe and America have been insulated from, you know, constant grief. And this is historically speaking, an anomaly, you know, for most of human history, grief or loss have always been a huge part of our lives, because we've always had this precarious relationship with nature and our environments.
4: Anthropology, since the inception of the discipline, which is at the end of the 19th century, really, has been working on the context of understanding human beings and human populations in their natural environment. So for example, very famously, Franz Boas, who's considered the father of American anthropology, Uh, a real field worker, was out in the Arctic, in the Canadian Arctic on Baffin Island, doing work with uh, indigenous people who lived in the region, Inuit people. And he was trying to understand their interactions with snow and ice in this environment. And it's what he called an extreme environment. And he was trying to understand how, how they survived, essentially, but also how they created community and culture and social systems and exchange networks.
0: As Semeny described, it's quite common for anthropologists to study people in extreme environments. For, for Dominic and Seminy, the environment they were fascinated by is Iceland, you know, one of the most extreme places you can live on Earth. And it was through this country that they gained some unexpected insights into grief.
4: So it's a country that's a little bit smaller than the state of New York in the United States. And yet it has about 400 glaciers present on it. Uh, about 10% of the country is covered in ice cap. You have 130 volcanoes all in a small space. Many of those volcanoes underneath glaciers and ice caps. 400 glaciers. Yeah,
0: 400 glaciers and 130 volcanoes. It's a, it's a lot. Incredible. So because of all these unique natural influences, Iceland has become, you know, sort of known as this land of fire and ice. Maybe you've heard of that? Yeah, I have. So let's start with the fire part. You remember the big eruption in 2011 that stopped all air traffic for a while?
1: Yes, and I remember that there were fellows coming to the academy who had to turn back. They couldn't make it over. Oh, wow. Volcanic ash has caused the worst disruption in air travel since 9-11.
4: For a fifth day, Iceland's volcano is creating havoc in the skies. More than 300 airports across Britain and Europe were closed over the weekend. More than 63,000 flights have been canceled since Thursday.
0: In this case, the ash disrupted travel, but it can get a lot worse.
2: So we have a friend, Gisli Paulson, who's probably Iceland's most famous living anthropologist who had this amazing experience when he was growing up. He was at college and then turned on the news one day and saw that a volcano had erupted and had covered his entire town that he grew up in, in ash, like some kind of Icelandic Pompeii.
0: Wow. That's yeah, so you just wake up and one day, you know, everything is ashen.
2: And I think it's a great symbol of what Icelanders have been struggling with for the entire history. I mean, it's been a hard life because you're living in, in high up in the North Atlantic, very near Greenland, uh, on an island that, especially during the Little Ice Age, was very cold and with not a lot of resources, not even enough wood to both have firewood and to build boats to go out and fish. So you have to choose between the two.
0: Just to clarify there, there's not a lot of wood or trees because the landscape is very barren. Iceland is actually not made of continental shelf. It's made up of ocean floor that's you know jutting out of the water. Wow. Which I didn't know. Also something I didn't know when I started working on this was that when fire and ice, i.e. volcanoes and glaciers, combine, you have some very dramatic results.
4: A spectacular site in southern Iceland where a volcano is erupting near a glacier. Scientists use snowmobiles Wednesday to get a closer look. There's a whole branch of science, a very specialized science that's developed and has really grown in Iceland called glacial volcanism, which is the, the study of the reaction between, or the interaction between glaciers, ice sheets, and volcanoes that lie beneath them. And so you have these very spectacular encounters between fire and ice, literally, that create these glacial outburst floods. And so in the may, mid-1800s, there was a glacial outburst flood that, whose flow flow rate that is the the rate of water the amount of water that was coming from this glacier because of a volcanic eruption underneath it exceeded the flow rate of the Nile, the Mississippi, the Yangtze and the Amazon combined.
1: That is incredible. That's like an otherworldly situation. So
0: for a while Iceland has the biggest and strongest river in the world for a couple of hours, you know. Incredible. And it's not just the water, there's also sediment in the water, which adds another dimension of danger to the glacial outbursts.
4: They can reach up to a million square meters per second in terms of flow that's outpouring from these glaciers. And they also carry a lot of material with them because it's a very dramatic river of fast flowing, unexpected cold water that is full of chunks of ice, sometimes the size of cars, that is full of sediment and mud that gets carried downstream.
0: Amazing. Mm-hmm. But as fascinating as they are, Iceland's natural wonders are not what initially interested Dominic and Semeny in the country. The first lure was actually a man-made catastrophe because it was caused mostly by men. And that's the financial crisis of 2008.
2: The Dow tumbled more than 500 points.
0: It hit Iceland really hard. It created the biggest banking crash per capita in the history of the world. This time that
2: you know, involved like public demonstrations like Iceland has never seen before. Like half the country showing up to bang pots and pans together in front of the parliament.
0: And in the midst of this crisis, a satirist, a comedian, oddly enough, emerges as a leader in this movement.
2: (laughs) There's this guy. um, He was well known as as a radio comic and had done a TV series, which was sort of like the Icelandic version of The Office that was well acclaimed. And he was doing a stand-up routine. His name is Jon Gnarr, G-N-A-R-R.
3: <laughs> and
2: as part of his his stand-up routine, he just started saying, "You know, I'm not a political guy, but you know, man, I think I could do better than these clowns. You know, maybe I should, I should run for president, or I should run for." mayor of Reykjavik which is the capital city and two-thirds of the Icelandic population lives in
0: Reykjavik
1: the Icelandic Steve Carell
0: yeah totally and this guy he, he did he actually did run uh, for office and he formed a party and he and he ran in the election that all sorts of ridiculous satirical promises with an equally ridiculous name
2: and he said yeah why don't we call it the best party because you know why would you vote for any other party and all these other parties are obviously the worst Right, so let's, let's call it the best party. And they they started running. he started making these kind of campaign announcements, the best party. And they had this kind of surreal um, list of uh, promises, like we're gonna put a polar bear in the zoo, we're gonna bring Disneyland to the airport, um, we're gonna economize, we can't have 12 Santas anymore, we're just gonna go for one Santa like everywhere else.
1: It reminds me a little bit of when uh, Stephen Colbert and um, John Stewart proposed to to run for president
0: i think there actually were crossovers i think they uh the the two sides were communicating with each other and as as my friends would say these days they're in the same whatsapp group (laughs) (laughs) my favorite part about all this is the campaign song that they created which is a fun spin on the tina turner's hit simply the best
1: So what are they saying?
0: They're saying what it sounds like: we are the best, better than all the rest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> did they did they win, or is that too fast?
0: Yeah, well, remarkably, he he won. Uh, and I know this kind of thing is not that uncommon anymore. After a comedian became president in Ukraine, and a certain TV celebrity won the presidency in the U.S., this might not seem that unusual. But he was one of the first, and he, he was mayor from 2010 to 2014.
1: Incredible.
0: Yeah, and by all accounts, he did a decent job. This is him in an interview with Deutsche Welle News. I don't think people realize this, how how lucky they are to have me here instead of some, some
1: uh, evil-minded bastard.
2: It was just this amazing case of people taking this incredibly devastating situation and kind of making art out of it, doing something creative, like, um, and it speaks to the kind of resilience of the Icelandic spirit and national culture that maybe we can talk more about. Um, But so that that case was so amazing. That's what drew us to Iceland in the first place was just the story of the best party.
0: Okay, so that's what interested these cultural anthropologists in the country, first of all, They were fascinated by this idea of a country making something beautiful or artistic out of calamity. And from there, a series of unlikely events lead us to the news story I mentioned in the beginning, the one that was written about, you know, all those thousands of times.
4: So then what happened essentially is that Dominic wrote an article that was published in an anthropological journal that got picked up by an anthropologist in Iceland, an Icelandic anthropologist, who happened to be the sister of one of... The best party members one of the lead uh-huh.
0: you know, so those few degrees of separation are common in iceland i'm told the country's so small that people often know someone they meet on the street so much so that there's a dating app that lets you know if you're related to the person that you just matched with
1: <laughs> that's that's
4: helpful
0: it is helpful you know you want you want to um, make sure that gene pool is going to be okay
4: just in iceland an icelandic anthropologist who happened to be the sister of one of the Best Party members, one of the lead people who was sort of heading the Best Party and doing a lot of the political work, who happened to be a former punk rocker.
0: Uh-huh, the plot thickens. Long story short, this punk rocker went on tour with... Björk. Yes, with yes. Björk. <laughs> I was
1: hoping she would make an appearance.
0: <laughs> yeah, Björk, uh, who then invited Dominic and Seminy to a show in Chicago.
2: She's about two thirds of the way through her set when this massive lightning storm rolls through, so much so that they had to shut down the festival.
4: We've been informed by the weather station
3: The stage.
2: And torrential pouring rain, so we're all like running through the rain to get back to to Bjork's trailer where we're all soaked. And Bjork is like a little miffed because her show her set got canceled. <laughs> Basically she's not happy about that.'t
4: be to tell you. That much.
2: But we end up just all there like soaked sitting in her trailer drinking vodka and I think that's where we really got to know each other first.
1: Oh my gosh, that is amazing. I'm jealous of Dominic Boyer right now. By the way,
0: I thought as much. So, to what listeners might not know, listening to you on the podcast is that you are actually a huge Bjork fan. Oh.
1: <laughs> I am a Bjork fan. I am a Bjork fan from from day one when the sugar cubes made their appearance in the nineteen eighties.
0: Have you ever seen her live in concert? I have not. Oh wow! I, I hear I, I hear she's quite amazing. I hear she's she's always pitch perfect. Yeah. And judging from her music and your own fanboy status, uh, what do you you think she's like?
1: Um, Let's say I imagine her very energetic, but also probably at the heart, probably very normal.
0: That's actually what Dominic and Semini said. They said the most notable thing about her was that she was incredibly down to earth.
2: Mm. That's kind of a sign of what Icelandic culture is and their values that even the most famous Icelanders are still the most humble, nicest people you've ever met. They don't expect a lot of special treatment. They feel very uncomfortable when people kind of put them on a pedestal. So, you know, you know, when Bjork goes to a club in Reykjavik, she waits in the line outside with everybody else, you know, to, to wait her turn to go inside because there is a really strong, you know, emphasis on kind of egalitarianism and just a sense of like, no one should get to, some Icelanders said, there's like a Icelandic phrase that's basically like, I know your grandmother. Like, no matter how big and important you are, I know where you come from, right? And it's, it's humble, just like the rest of us.
0: It's a great sentiment. And that idea of connectedness of I know your grandmother is what Dominic and Semini believe is something that the rest of the world can really learn from Iceland.
1: Fascinating. Iceland, the the big village.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, with with ice and volcanoes um, (laughs) added on top. Yeah. Anyway, so through this series of events, they meet Björk, and they actually end up going to Iceland to see this place for themselves. And when they arrive... They start to learn more about the culture and history, and as they do so, they realize that it's even more unique than they thought.
4: Icelanders were the first human beings to settle on the island, and it's important to note that they they were not settler colonials. That is, they didn't displace any other human beings that were there previous to them. And they have actually lived on the island longer than the Maori people have lived on Aotearoa, New Zealand. So there's a very long history, 1200 years of history of living on this remote and barren island, you know, for which Icelanders have had to struggle in order to survive at many times.
0: But being the first had some notable responsibilities attached to it.
4: But when they first arrived on the island, because they were the first human beings there, there were no names given to any of the places. And so you had this vast place and set of landscapes that needed to be given an identity, that needed to be given a name. And if you go to Iceland now, today, you'll find that every mountain has a name, every glacier, just about has a name, every valley has a name, the rivers, the streams, all these little passageways. And so there's an important way in which Icelanders have marked the place as their own by naming.
1: It reminds me of of, uh, Native American culture in many ways.
4: Yeah,
0: so I think all indigenous peoples have this like weight of responsibility of having to decide what something is. Also for a lot of Icelanders' history, citizens were very weary of their natural environment even afraid of it. So that sounds a little difficult for us to believe now, especially since glaciers are so beautiful and majestic. But for most of the country's history, they were, you know, just very threatening.
2: In the old days and for centuries, glaciers would advance in the winter and then maybe retreat and every year would be a different story. And there were Icelandic farms that ran right up to the edges of glaciers because they were using all the the arable land they could to sustain themselves. If it was a very cold winter, you might wake up in spring with the glacier knocking on your door or maybe having overrun your barn.
1: Wow. So they were really, um, I mean, integrated, their lives integrated to, this, to the landscape. Totally.
0: Um, and at this point, I should explain that what separates a glacier from just a heap of ice is the fact that it's so big, it begins to move on its own. It could literally just show up on your doorstep one day.
4: It's a huge wall of ice coming down the valley toward your house and your farm and it is literally unstoppable. Glaciologists talk about glaciers as rivers of slow-moving ice and I think that's a nice metaphor but it really does when you're proximate to the glacier when you're next to one it feels much more like a mountain of ice that's slowly crawling through the valley Um, and as it increases in size as it did during colder times in Iceland, it would move through valleys and displace land, shape the land. Glaciers terraform, in fact, the land as they go over them. And we can see examples of this all over the world, where glaciers during the Ice Age have carved out valleys and literally reshaped the land.
0: Another dimension of these glaciers is that they actually have a sound. A sound? Yeah, it, it, it sounds really menacing. So Cora Rose from the Art We There project was kind enough to let us play a recording she made of a glacier.
1: It Sounds like a thunderstorm inside of a barrel
0: or something. That's what I thought too, just like something dramatic but contained. Yeah.
2: The first time I came face to face with the edge of a glacier was Yoko, this this outlet glacier. And I had always thought glaciers are as these like amazing blue ice, you know, you see them in the pictures or from a distance. The, the cutting edge or the leading edge of a glacier, it looks really scary. It's covered with dirt because it's been turning up the dirt under itself as it moves. It's black and it's jagged. Um, they gurgle, and people who spend a lot of time around them say they kind of sing throughout the day. They have a different tones that emerge during different times of the day, depending on whether they're melting or freezing. So it's like they're alive, and it's like it's a kind of untamable beast in your backyard. And so you can see why, especially back in the days when glaciers still advanced, in Iceland people... Would be right to be terrified of them.
1: How could you not think of it as a giant living thing crawling across the landscape and there's nothing any human can do to stop it? You know, that's it's, it's sort of, you know, that movement alone is, is a quality of life that, um, you know, is essential. And you, you would attribute that to moving things that they're
0: alive. It ticks off one more checkbox on the life uh, grid, So it moves, it has a sound, and beyond the sounds, it also has a smell.
4: It has what I would call a really metallic odor because of all the earth and the volcanic rock that is embedded in it. And as that's exposed to air and to a little bit of heat, it emanates a fairly strong smell that I would most closely describe as resembling blood because of the metallic odor of it. It's got that kind of irony... Smell to it.
1: That's
0: creepy. This thing that smells like blood and sounds like lightning in a barrel is is <laughs> right next to your house.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness.
0: Yeah. So very understandably, Icelanders tended to avoid the natural beauty in their countryside. You know. Yeah. Because it was so ominous. Yeah. Until at some point, things began to shift.
4: So. Beginning in about the mid-19th century with the influx of these ideas from Europe about nature and natural environments and, and wanting to spend time in those spaces, Iceland was also influenced by those movements of literary and cultural infusion. And so the natural environment, the highlands, and the beauty of the natural environment, the volcanoes, the glaciers, the land itself became part of a national patrimony in a way that it hadn't been before. And by the 1960s and 70s, you began to see that Icelanders were adventuring out into the highlands more and more, hiking, going out, camping out on top of glaciers.
0: So Dominic and Simony observed this shift in how Icelanders perceive their environment. And they actually made a film about it. And I'm going to play you a snippet from the film. Um, here they're talking to a philosopher whose name, unfortunately, I'm going to mutilate because it's very Icelandic. And I, I apologize <laughs> to her and uh, everybody who knows her. Göreborg Ráveník Jóhannesdóttir. So apologies again.
3: Landscape uh, is, especially in the Icelandic language, very much connected to beauty. So it's always, you know, when we talk about landscape, it's about perceiving beauty, or, or you know, having those kind of aesthetic moments, you know. So um, it's always a description of, you know, your kind of whole perception of a place. Um, so, in that, if we understood it in that way, you know, landscape is not just this physical thing; it's always this relationship or intertwining of the human and the land. So you can't really... Uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a word that allows you to describe how you can't really make a clear-cut distinction between the human and the land. The, the You know, the land is always influencing me, and I'm always influencing the land that I'm in as well. It sounds
1: very, its you know, holistic in the true sense of the word.
0: Totally. So in their research, they spoke to many locals who had similarly intimate relationships with the landscape and with glaciers in particular.
4: We were able to talk to several artists about the inspiration that they found in glaciers. And one person who stands out in particular is a man named Palt of Husafell. So he lives in this little valley called Husafell, and his family, his kin, have lived there for many generations. Many of them were stonemasons in the beginning and they made headstones, these carved headstones, which he described would break in the frost. They would crack apart when it would become too cold. But there are these beautiful headstones. And Paul himself makes art from stones and rocks that he finds in the surrounding valley. And he has this amazing instrument that he calls the stone harp or the, the steinharpa.
1: Those are rocks?
0: Yeah, those are rocks. He's refined the pitch to to just exactly the right tone, and he's made interesting music out of it. So given this growing affection for glaciers, Dominic was very surprised when one day he came across a news story about one of them. We happen across this small story,
2: which is in an English-language Icelandic news source. It's only about... 79 words we counted it, which says the first Icelandic glacier not only to lose ice, but to be lost altogether has happened. This is the first named Icelandic glacier to disappear because of climate change, to go from being a moving, fearsome, tremendous glacier to being just what glaciologists call dead ice, s- sitting on the side of a mountain. And it's called okjokut or Ok Glacier.
1: When they say that this glacier um, has died, it just mean, does it mean that it's, it's not moving? All the, all the qualities that we just ascribed to this giant glacier, it's, it's moving, it makes sounds, it smells like blood. Those things stop.
0: They're gone. So the first thing to go is the ability to move under its own weight. Once that stops, then it's just a heap of ice. So they read about this glacier disappearance and they were really puzzled by the lack of attention the story was getting.
2: We were kind of taken aback by this. We looked around a little bit more and this was the only story we could find. Even in the Icelandic press, there was almost no attention paid to the loss of their first glacier. And that really got us thinking, you know, this is kind of a big story, not just for Iceland, but for the world. We're getting to the point where it's not just glaciers are receding, but now they're vanishing. And that seemed to us like a threshold had been passed. And it was a story that we wanted more people to know about.
0: And this is where we return to the idea of grief. What do you do when something you love is dying? The answer was obvious to them. You need some kind of memorial. But that answer raised many more questions of its own.
2: What's an appropriate way to say goodbye to a glacier? How do you say goodbye to a glacier? And to be honest, we didn't know going in what would make sense, and we wanted to talk to Icelanders about what would be appropriate to them, what they thought would be appropriate. Would it be appropriate at all to to say goodbye to a glacier or would that seem to be kind of a frivolous new agey thing to them?
0: They determined after a while that they should make a memorial, And they set out on a little expedition to try to figure out how to do that. Well, there were a couple
2: of obstacles or challenges, certainly, in in making this memorial happen. So we had to go through a whole bureaucratic process of asking for permission. And that meant going to the local regional authorities and then first talking with them, getting them on board with the idea.
0: Over the course of a year, they went about jumping through all sorts of bureaucratic hoops that were put in front of them but through it all they still had these persistent doubts
2: i think one of the things that was difficult going through the process was just wondering always to ourselves you know how much will this matter
4: what if we wanted to get a, a glacier
3: tour of oc Oc-Yokut? Yeah. why would awesome. you want to go there
4: Well, we've heard about it. Where is it?
3: You've heard about it? Well, I'm going to have to keep the fifth and ask you where it is.
2: And, you know, it seems like a, a kind of a quirky, interesting thing to do. But in the end, you know, is it really going to make that much of a contribution?
0: But they persisted. Once they got all the permissions to go ahead, they had the not insignificant task of conceptualizing it. You know, what would it actually look like? They consulted with various locals and eventually settled on... A bronze plaque, because that was the material that they thought would last the longest, longer even than the rocks themselves, by the way. And they worked with a writer and filmmaker, Andre Sner Magnonsen, to write the words. That name I could pronounce.
2: (laughs) So the words he came up with at the end, the ones that were finally cast into bronze, he decided to formulate it as a letter to the future. And the letter reads like this. Falk is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. And then it says August 2019, 415 parts per million CO2, which is the threshold of uh, carbon dioxide concentration that was passed in the spring of 2019.
4: And Andre often talks about writing a kind of message to the future in the following way, where he talks about, you know, if I have a a grandchild who lives to be as old as my grandmother, so my grandmother lived to be almost 100 years old. She only missed it by a few months. So if I have a grandchild who lives to be 100 years old, if I write a message to that grandchild now, and she carries that forward with her and gives it to her grandchild when she reaches my age, that grandchild could easily be alive, my great grandchild could easily easily be alive 200 years from now. And that's exactly the time when all of Iceland's glaciers will be gone. So there's a way of connecting our own human timeframe, our own generational timeframe between a grandchild that I might have, a grandchild that she might have, and the future of the glaciers in Iceland and around the world.
0: While they're thinking about all this, the entire project begins gaining attention. So Semini and Dominic work hard to invite people to come to the ceremony and many say yes, including people like the Minister of Environmental Affairs. It gets quite big and things are starting to look like they're going their way, right up until just a few days before the memorial was meant to be put in place.
2: And one of the things we decided to do, just so there would be no problems on the day of, was that we would go up a few days in advance and drill the holes in the rock, make sure that the plaque fit, so that when we came back, all we would have to do is push it in, glue it in, and be done, and we could have our speeches. But we had, uh, Iceland is famously mercurial weather, and the weather report, we had to go this one day because it was the only day everyone who needed to be there could go. And the weather report looked a little squirrely, but it looked like okay, it was fine, it wasn't going to be a problem. Uh, we ended up going to Auk and hiking up, and about halfway up, we started to get hit by this kind of uh, snowstorm, sleet storm, rainstorm—really bad weather—that uh, kind of came out of nowhere, and we weren't really dressed for it but we knew we had to press on to get through there. And as we're going up higher and higher, we're beginning to wonder like, you know, we might be getting hypothermia soon. Like the weather was that bad. I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't feel my fingers.
0: They were being guided by an Icelandic student named Magnus who was helping them out.
4: When we got to the snow line, Magnus had the GPS. He had borrowed a GPS device from his brother that he mostly knew how to work, but not fully. And he was, trying to, he was trying to get us to the side of the stone, which is impossible to see when you're on top of the mountain with all the snow and with all these other rocks around. It's very difficult to locate it just by sight. So we were following the GPS and there was one moment where we were walking along and Magnus turned to me and he said, I don't know, the GPS is wrong, it's not working. And I was like, Magnus, don't tell me that, Magnus. I can't hear that because here we were literally drenched above the snow line in with water in our boots, freezing water in our boots and needing to drill the holes but not knowing exactly if we were going to find that stone and how how we would make it happen.
2: We made it to the top following just the GPS coordinate cuz the visibility was so low. And we're up there and we realize, you know, all of our hands are so frozen, no one can really even hold the drill. Like we couldn't. Between us, we didn't have like two working hands really. But uh, all full credit to our documentarian Josh Okun, who was just there to take pictures, turned out to be the guy who drilled the holes because he was the one who had the most uh, sensitivity in his fingers. And miraculously, we got it all drilled on the first try because we really were like worried if we stay up here much longer, we're somebody's going to get hurt. Like, and there's there's no easy way to get back down again. And Iceland is filled with stories of people who who frankly perish in what seem to be just normal conditions just because. They think it's okay they get up bad weather hits and to get back down is like a two-hour hike
1: that's really frightening
0: yeah so they get this reminder of you know nature is still in charge here yeah
2: hey everyone uh welcome i'm
0: thankfully the group survived and on the actual day of the summit they had more pleasant weather
2: this unglacier tour part two plus (laughs) a place for a memorial back installation adventure.
0: adventure. It started out with dozens of people gathering at the foot of the mountain for the memorial.
2: Yeah, she did and the sheep out the we time. rented the
4: and biggest the bus long. that is available in the country of Iceland. It holds about 60 people. And it was full of both press, media, journalists, as well as hikers and others interested in the story. I
0: sort of have uh, the image of Chicken Little, you know, the sky is falling and everybody's, you know, joining in a little bit more. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's this, this, this thing that they've hatched is, is coming to fruition.
4: And we had going on the bus on the way to the base of the mountain a young woman who turned out we found to be a really important climate activist in the country, uh, had written a poem for Auk that we didn't know about. And she just brought it up and said, I, I wrote this poem for Auk and I'd like to read it. <laughs>
3: As they were ascending,
0: they observed the tradition that is associated with another mountain in Iceland called Helgafeld.
4: And when you hike, the first time you hike up Helgafeld, you must stay silent, and always look forward, never look back. And if you hold good in your heart, when you reach the top of the mountain, you'll be granted three wishes. So based on that tradition, we packed up our things and we all came together, got in a single file line, spoke not a word, no one turned back. We went straight up the last bit of the mountain until we reached Site of the stone. And I remember in that hike, we had the young climate activists, but we also had some children with us, including our own 10 year old daughter. And she was up there at the beginning of the hike and made it all the way to the top, which was not inconsequential. She came all the way to the top. And as we made that last bit of the hike, the last hundred yards to get to the stone, she was behind me in the line. And but, you know, you're scrambling over rocks, and you can't quite tell who's behind you or whether they've fallen behind. And I wanted to turn around and see if she was still there, if she was still right behind me in the line, because I was a little, you know, a little worried. I wanted to make sure she was right there behind me. But I couldn't turn around, because you can't look back. And so I got very, it was very touching. I got very tearful about the idea of not looking back, not looking back for your child, not being able to look back on... Future generations or past generations and understand what's happened. So I didn't turn around, but I reached out my hand as far as I could behind me and she grabbed up my hand. So I knew she was there.
1: That's a lot of discipline on her part, on Semine's part, to not turn around actually, you know, based on this, uh, you know, mythological idea. Uh, but that, you know, but her solution with the hand is, is functional.
0: Dominic has a similar kind of story, but he found the ascent moving for a slightly different reason.
2: But I also kind of came to love the plaque, which was living with us in our little room in Reykjavik. I like the smell of it. I still remember the smell of it today and the weight of it and the way it looked. And we were doing, you know, photo ops with it and, and all sorts of things. I came to feel like it was a member of the family in a way. Um, and so I was you know, legitimately sad that we were going to have to be, I mean, proud that it was going to go off in the world, but also sad that it was leaving the family home, so to speak. But the other thing that was really, for me, like a part of the experience of that hike was that I had it in a backpack. And I had carried this thing to the top of this mountain, not once, but twice, because on that ill-fated venture a few days before, we also had to carry it up to make sure that it fit. So twice I'd carried this this thing and you know it's it's heavy it's made of metal it's i don't know 10 or 15 kilos and and in your back with its with its spines like poking into your skin and um you know all i could think is i'm glad an Icelander isn't being forced to do this because icelanders didn't create their own climate change icelanders activity has been so minimal seen globally they haven't been the ones that have melted their glaciers on the other hand People like us in the United States, who have been living this high-carbon lifestyle forever, we have more, more to uh, atone for, if you will. and Especially people in Houston, which is where we live, which is the center of you know global oil and gas industry. So, so there's something fitting in that too.
1: There's something very uh, um, passion scene about it.
0: Yeah, something religious involved. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We are atoning. So eventually, they get to the top, and some of their guests give speeches. Thank you so much. Um, in. much. This is quite interesting. The glaciologist who discovered that Ok is disappearing, Odor Sigerson, actually issued a death certificate to mark the melting of the glacier.
3: And it says that it used to be, Ock, You could use to be a mountain gla- glacier, and previously...
0: And then uh, Semeny invited uh, all the young people who were there, to push the plaque into place.
4: So come on, come on over, don't be shy.
0: Finally, all of these solemn gestures culminated in one poignant moment.
4: Soon after, um, I think it was Andre said that there's several men here who sing in the choir and they can do a song. And so they came to the top of the little stage. There's about eight of them, I'd say. Andre was among them. And they kind of came to the top and then just broke out into song
3: okay autumn this is
1: song returns
0: yeah we have this wow this idea of when when something solemn happens they sort of feel the need to sing it's sort of this almost transcendent moment and when it was all over they didn't need to wonder anymore whether anyone cared about their little memorial
2: in the end, you know, it was probably 10,000 different media organizations picked up this story in the space of a couple of months.
4: It was in Time magazine. It was in People magazine. It was in The Guardian. It was in the BBC multiple it times. It was covered
2: by ZDF, the uh, public broadcaster in Germany. And then interestingly, it was covered by some really out-of-the-way places that you wouldn't have expected, like Popular Mechanics, which is a, a magazine for people who are like car enthusiasts. They covered the story. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, you know, people really invested in in petriculture who are saying, hey, you know, this is an important thing that's happened.
0: Obviously, Dominic and Semeny were really encouraged by this response.
2: You know, it's something that just um, was really moving because, you know, here was this little glacier who had died, you know, basically without anybody really having paid attention other than the glaciologists who'd been tracking the story, uh, that then, the story that a memorial plaque would be created and that that image would circulate around the world was kind of more than anyone could have hoped for. And I think also maybe an optimistic sign that, you know, people care more about these issues than we may think. I mean, we we feel a lot of times hopeless, like we're in this situation of impasse and paradox, but here actually we found a story that people really cared about and were moved by. And when The Economist wrote an obituary for AUK, which was kind of incredible, was the first obituary they had ever done for a glacier. And we worked with the writer who created some truly beautiful words for that uh, memorial too. When they published it, you know, people were writing into them and saying, I just, you know, uh, I've never cried before reading an Economist article, that's insane. And the first thing I did was to call my broker and sell all my fossil fuel stocks.
0: sticks out for me is that this is the first named glacier to melt, right? There have been others that we don't know about that may have vanished as well. But there's something precious about naming something that makes us miss it more when it's gone, in a kind of chicken and egg way, you know? And we kind of remember it, whether it's called Ocucult or Tweety. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you say is true. It's when when something is named, it has an identity, right? It's not just just not one of a group of things. It has um, it has something specific to its to its being that we you know that we um, that we recognize as individual, um, and in that way, you know, it makes death all the more concrete.
4: Of course, the naming of places has been important in the country ever since the the time of settlement of the human beings, the first settlers on the island. There's a a book of names, the Landboken, that tells you all the names of all the places. So this first named glacier to be lost to climate change is a way of also indicating that other smaller glaciers that were unnamed in the country and elsewhere have already been lost, but their loss has not been recognized. Their death has not been named. Their death has not been memorialized or maybe even recognized by people who surround them. So the the loss of a named glacier is significant because we humans like to name things and it gives an identity to something that might not otherwise be recognized as having an identity.
0: And and Semini also said that Icelanders provide a useful model for how humans in general could respond to climate change.
4: Icelanders have been living in these precarious, natural environments for a very long time and needing to sort of make do and come together collectively in order to survive in fairly harsh, extreme conditions. One of the things that any Icelander will tell you is that since forever, since as long as human history has occurred on the island, one would always open the door to strangers. Because if someone is caught and the outside if someone is caught in the storm and the wind and the weather in the nature you must allow them to come in because there's a real possibility they might then die and again because it's a small community that's very likely someone you know or who's related to you somehow so that sense of collective living together has been very tightly woven in a place with a small population and very difficult environmental conditions
0: it's that idea of the stranger is probably someone you know or knows your grandmother. And also, it's telling that the ceremony ended off with, of all things, a song. Dominic says that this is also a sign of hope. It's
2: a feeling of togetherness. And I think that's something the Icelanders do really well is like maintain a sense of togetherness because they've had to, like no individual Icelander ever would have survived. They always had to work together. And I think that's also a good message for a world entering a more unruly uh, era of weather uh, and changing uh, earth systems as we're going to have to work together in ways that we have trained ourselves out of through all of our rampant individualism, but we're going to have to find our way back to it again. So those cultures that like have a positive sense of sociality and relationality are the ones that we need to be imitating.
0: brings us to the end of our story all that remains then is for us to read you the credits
1: and that's it for this episode of beyond the lecture dominic boyer is a spring 2020 axel springer fellow at the american academy in berlin You can listen to more of our interviews with American Academy fellows and distinguished visitors on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced and narrated by Tony Andrews with production assistance from Denise Gammon. Thanks also to Cora Rose from the Art We There Yet project for the sounds of the glacier. I'm your host, RJ McGill. Thanks for listening.